What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome to this new episode of New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. This is your host, Andrea Bernardi, from Oxford University in the United Kingdom. Today, I'm with Professor John Komlos to talk about his very original new book, The title of the book is Foundations of Real-World Economics. There is also a very interesting subtitle called What Every Economics Student Needs to Know. And this is the second edition published by Routledge in 2019. Professor Komlons, welcome to the podcast. Um, I can uh, introduce to uh, the listeners that you have a very interesting background, a very successful career that mentioned that uh, uh, took place in several institutions around the world. You will tell us something more about this. I will only mention now that you have not one, but two doctorates, one in history and one in economics from the University of Chicago. Welcome. Please tell us something about your career in economics and your uh, the origin the origin of your book. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I uh, took my first uh, degree in history, and it was uh, it was uh, a good choice in the sense that it enabled me to understand a lot of the commotion that is going on today. But I was not able to get a uh, good uh, position in uh, the academic world with. Uh, that kind of a degree. So I went back to the University of Chicago and uh, received my PhD in economics. And I became an economic historian, which uh, was a very interesting uh, experience at the time. I learned uh, from uh, Robert Fogel, who later received a Nobel Prize in economics in 1993, that there was a relationship between the um, economy and human biological processes that meant how we grew, how we developed biologically uh, was impacted uh, by agricultural production, the efficiency of the medical uh, services, all sorts of different things. And I spent about 30 years uh, researching that um, in in that field. I founded a journal uh, by the title Economics and Human Biology in 2003, uh, which has been thriving ever since. And it was a, it was a great, uh, great 
uh, experience, uh, lots of interesting uh, findings, but one of the findings uh, was that uh, the economy uh, had an impact on human beings that was a little bit different from what you get if you just look at GNP figures or income figures. And that led me into uh, thinking in terms of uh, human beings as being the central aspect of economics. Okay, that is to say it is economics should really not be about uh, money or inanimate concepts like uh, output, GNP, and all this is all good, well and good, but income is an intermediate product in a way. And the question is, how does that income uh, impact uh, the human beings? And through that, I, I became what I now call a humanistic economist and advocate a capitalism with a human face. And then came, uh, then came the financial crisis, uh, which really meant that mainstream economics was off the tracks. And there I began to uh, start writing a, a textbook, uh, which really, uh, underline the differences between blackboard economics, a term coined by the Nobel Prize winner Ronald Coase, and real-world economics. And that's what I have been doing ever since, uh, which is now about a good 10 years. Very interesting. I see this word humanitarian. You define yourself now um, around this concept of humanitarian. And there is a, a very original feature of your book uh, in the introduction. There is a section called My Credo. And here you state that your world, world view on economics is based on your self being progressive, democratic, and humanitarian. So do you think, first of all, that uh, these should be required to every author of economics textbook to state in advance to tell their readers what is their worldview. And second, in which way this worldview affected the selection of topics and the way you wrote this book? Very important to to be honest. I, I think that's one of my big, uh, uh, big uh, dispositions that I think that uh, we in academia have uh, have a responsibility to be honest, and uh, I think that it is clear that economics cannot be uh, divorced from ideology. You know, Alan Greenspan said this in his uh, in his. Um, uh, interview at con in Congress back in 2008 that everybody has an ideology. People were attacking him on his on his ideology, and he said, "You know, every I made a mistake, but everybody has an ideology." 
And I think that is true. And it is, I wanted to be upfront about it for one thing. And the other thing is I want to stress that mainstream economics claims to be free from ideology, but nothing could be further from the truth because every assumption that they make you know, that efficiency is important is a normative statement. You know, for some people, efficiency is important. For me, efficiency is not as important as equity. So you, you, can't, uh, you can't really divorce economics from, um, uh, from, your your ideology and I think uh, you're, we are best served if we uh, put that up front you know Richard uh, Feynman who was a physicist uh, made a very important um, uh, commencement uh, speech back in 1974 in which he said we have to ba- bend over backward so as not to deceive ourselves and that is something that we in academia should uh, should uh, observe, not to uh, not to deceive ourselves, and in turn deceive our students, because economics is very important. We look around the world today, and you, we see all the commotion, and most of the commotion has to do with uh, bad economic policies. And uh, therefore, uh, it's important for us to uh, be more honest than, than we have been. In the U.S. alone, more than a million students take principles of economics. And all they come away with is that markets are efficient. The point is that these million students go away from principle. They don't take any other economics courses to begin with. So they come away with the wrong uh, intuition. Markets are not efficient uh, unless in very special circumstances because they are full of imperfect information. They're full of transaction costs. They're full of people who are uh, taking advantage of other people through opportunistic behavior. That's not efficiency. And these kinds of issues are not mentioned in uh, mainstream uh, principles of economics courses. And that is very deceiving. By the way, before we go ahead with the book, uh, from your career, I, uh, I would like to make a digression. You taught in American universities, but also for a long time in Munich, in Germany, for 18 years, but also at the University of Vienna. So talking about students, uh, uh, ideologies, and the role of um, economists while teaching, was there any difference for you uh, while working in the United States or in Europe? Well, there is a little difference in the sense that um, alternative viewpoints can find uh, their niche in a European context uh, more so than than here at uh, at uh, 
an American university because in Germany, for instance, a professor can offer a course without it having been approved by higher authorities. So I was able to teach a course on humanistic economics at the University of Munich, something that I would probably not have been able to do in at the uh, at an American university where the uh, norms are um, set at a higher level. Uh, In other words, uh, dissenting uh, viewpoints I found could be uh, tolerated uh, more easily in a European context. That was my experience at least. Very interesting. And talking about dissent, you refer in the book about the experience of rethinking economics, a network of national organizations that tried to discuss whether our textbooks of economics and our syllabuses and our programs were fit for purpose after the financial crisis of 2008-2009. And they published 13 theses, the those theses were published outside London School of Economics in Britain, and you refer to, the, to this experience. And I suppose that uh, your textbook is in line with, this, uh, with, this, um, with those theses and, in general, with this movement of rethinking economics. Yes, uh, my textbook is in line uh, with this movement. This is a very important movement intellectual movement, and uh, it'll take some time for it to uh, mature. And um, my feeling is that it has to has to be uh, come out on top eventually and overturn the uh, mainstream stranglehold, one might say, uh, that it has on uh, economic uh, teaching, which is very destructive, basically, of the socio-political order uh, as we see today. Uh, you know, why do we have all these uh, problems around the globe? And uh, it has to do with um, the fact that, econo- that economists overlooked the downside of hyper-globalization, for example. Uh, they overlooked Uh, the downside of the kind of incomprehensible inequality that has uh, developed over the years. And uh, it's it's like a cancerous cell gnawing away at our uh, democratic institutions. It's it's an an incomprehensible uh, phenomenon. Going back to your book, um, uh, I would define it also very much political, if I may. Uh, readers will find an illustration with a picture of Rosa Parks at one point, mm-hmm. but also from page one in the introduction, they will find uh, the name of the current American president, Donald Trump, uh, here and there. And uh, yes, I think politics plays a role. And I was surprised to find these uh, um, quotation from um, Dennis Roderick, the other professor, which is blaming the profession of the economists, blaming the economists for uh, the success of Donald Trump. Can you tell us something about this? 
Well, Danny Roderick is is one of the few economists who uh, dare to come out and uh, say uh, pretty loudly that you guys were way off the track because we knew from way back ever since uh, Stolper Samuelson's uh, theorem back in the 1940s that there are losers in the game of foreign trade and hyperglobalization. Now, the mainstream said these losers are going to have to fend for themselves. That was their ideology, you see. They had to fend for themselves. Well, that's all well and good, but uh, if they are not able to do that, they might come back and clobber us over the head, uh, just like other losers in other historical episodes did. And this is something that uh, economists did not contemplate, did not um, think about. And uh, of course, uh, Donald Trump took advantage of all this despair in the society. That there is an incredible amount of despair in the U.S. economy today. People say the economy is stronger at full employment. Nonsense. In a strong economy, people don't kill themselves. At, a, at the rate that Americans are killing themselves uh, through op the opioid epidemic, uh, through alcoholism, through self-inflicted uh, wounds, about 150,000 Americans this year are going to kill themselves. Well, that's more people than died in the Vietnam War and the Korean War put together. And that's just one year. Okay, so that shows the, the uh, accumulation of despair in this country. And it's uh, phenomenal because these are people who are not able to find their way in this very complex economy. And if you're born on the wrong side of the tracks, how are you going to even able to afford to go to a decent high school so you can get into a decent college, you see. Uh, you have to start with a decent kindergarten to begin with. So if you're born on the wrong side of the track or if you're a minority and being discriminated against, it becomes extremely difficult to make your way in this kind of an economy. Uh, consequently, um, there it, there's a lot of political uh, repercussions of mainstream economists' inadequate assumptions. And that is a uh, shame. They, they haven't thought about the socio-political implications of their policies. And um, that's where the... Um, the vengeance of the deplorables come from. In in the book, you refer to very prominent economists, but you argue that they have a minor role in standard textbooks of um, macro, and, um, macro and micro economics. You refer to Akerlof, Arrow, Kahneman, Krugman, Stiglitz, Taylor, 
Oliver Williamson, also Herbert Simon. Uh, so what role do they play in your textbook instead? Well, an important role because uh, I believe that behavioral economics has to be taught at the beginning level from, from day one. You, you cannot make the assumption that people are rational, profit, uh, profit maximizer and utility maximizers. That's not a, that's not a way to begin a, a discipline on false premises. Because Kahneman and Tversky and Thaler and Schiller and Herbert Simon have all shown that these uh, assumptions are false, period. So if you begin your discipline with false assumptions, it is not very likely that you're going to come up with some good... Uh, a good theoretical basis for our understanding of economic processes, you see. So I I say you got to make the right assumptions. You got to look at the impact of imperfect information, asymmetric information from the start. You cannot just say, let's assume that everybody knows everything. That's not economics. That's uh, philosophy, you know, that's nonsense in, in, in the sense you can make that assumption and you can create a fantasy economy and it's all well and, you know, could be beautiful intellectually. But then don't apply it to the real world, please, because you're going to come up with some, uh, you know, major problems. And the financial crisis is a major problem. You know, Greenspan and Bernanke kept on saying we cannot have a uh, you know we cannot have a bubble that is of major proportions. We have um, what Bernanke called the great moderation, you know that sort of thing. And then four years later, uh, the world was in turmoil. So mainstream economists do not have the right. Uh, ammunition to understand the real world. They kept on saying, all you have to do is have income growth and we're going to be better off. Well, we're not better off when 150,000 people commit suicide in the United States alone. We're not better off if uh, there are so many people who are desperate for one reason or another. So economists have not come up with with the right predictions. We're not happier than we were 30 years ago. Okay, economists would say, yes, we have more income, we should be better off. But we're not better off. At least we don't feel like we're better off, you see. And that is because they overlook the impact of relative income. Relative income doesn't come up in mainstream textbooks. But that's a very important concept because that has a major impact on our welfare. Conspicuous consumption doesn't come up in mainstream economics. So they leave out a lot of basic needs doesn't come up. Uh, Look for gender in in a basic 
textbook uh, or minorities, see if you can find African Americans and how they're discriminated against in uh, in mainstream economic textbooks. So it's a completely fantasy world that they create, and um, you know that's what I'm trying to correct. Very interesting. We traditionally think that uh, uh, students of economics should have a standard textbook of macro and micro, and then a more advanced, but still standard. And then only at the end of the process, or maybe a doctoral level, they should <laughs> the also... Level, but how many people go to the doctoral level? <laughs> we have a million exactly. students studying economics who take just one course in economics. Exactly. You see my point. So of course, it, it's 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 amazing mistake that uh, we are uh, we are doing we are making uh, by suggesting that you get basic supply and demand, profit maximization, you know all these sorts of basic tools, and then you build on it three or four years later. Well, these students are going to be way gone by then, and their takeaway when they become politicians or newspaper uh, uh, authors or whatever. This is very interesting, and you let me think about an interview I read yesterday by uh, Martin Wolf, and he said, when I was young, I decided to study economics because I was interested in politics, and you cannot understand politics without understanding economics. And then he said, the level of ignorance in our societies about economics is imp- is astonishing. So exactly. he, was assu- he was assuming that there are democratic implications of uh, our ignorance of economics, not to mention the fact that uh, the main, um, the, vast, the vast majority of books of economics are somehow what you defined mainstream economics, so poor in, in, in another respect. Right. I, th- I think that's absolutely right. And uh, economists are to be blamed for writing uh, bad textbooks and teaching bad courses. Uh, to millions of students every single year, pretty soon you're going to have a lot of people with misinformation. And um, that has incredible implications for our lives, for our political system, for our society, incredible implications. And look at trade. You know, trade is supposed to be good. Americans are going to be better off, Clinton said. We're going to be creating jobs. That's what Clinton said in the 1990s, hundreds of thousands of jobs. Well, he never said anything about the hundreds of thousands of jobs that are going to be destroyed. Is that a moral ethical economic policy that does not take into consideration uh, the pain that it causes. It just emphasizes the good part. The final chapter of your book is on the financial crisis of 2008. I would like to ask you something about this chapter, but also more generally, if you think that we will remember for a long time this crisis or whether you think that soon it will be just one of the many financial crises that we forgot uh, that we had periodically every now and then since the post-war. Well, I don't see a lot of uh, people remembering 
you know, the, uh, the, the pain, and we're still under the pain of that financial crisis. In other words, financial crises are very, very powerful for the simple reason that they affect so many people and so many people become disaffected and politically uh, become extreme. Uh, if you look back in the 1930s, there's no way that we would have had a new deal in America, which was pretty extreme for the time, uh, without 1929. There's no way that we would have, would have had a victory of the Nazi party in Germany without 1929. So 1929 had incredible uh, very powerful political repercussions. Now, 2008 also had very powerful repercussions because we first had elected a revolutionary president, in a sense, uh, Barack Obama, right? Uh, we would probably not have elected uh, a African-American president without uh, the turmoil that the financial crisis caused. And he promised us change, on which he reneged because he appointed to positions of authority in the financial realm people like Timothy Geithner, who were responsible partly for the developments uh, that brought us to the financial crisis. So he, he, he totally wasted an opportunity to do something like the New Deal uh, back in 1933. Instead, he wanted to overcome the immediate problems of the crisis by bringing Wall Street back into full steam. And that did indeed uh, succeed. Wall Street was doing fine very soon thereafter, but he completely forgot about Main Street. And if you got nine million people thrown out of their homes, you're gonna you're gonna get a lot of disaffected people, people who are losing their jobs, unemployed and who are becoming what Hillary Clinton so disingenuously called uh, the deplorables, which is a deplorable, uh, <laughs> deplorable name, right, for people who are being clobbered over the head. Of course, they didn't behave like uh, you would expect uh, middle-class educated people to behave, but you can't really blame them because it was middle-class educated people who made them that way. And therefore, they got, you know, they got riled up and all you need is, uh, you know, a populist like uh, Donald Trump and before him, uh, uh, Palin, if you remember, Sarah Palin already in 2008 was uh, similarly inclined, takes advantage of that opportunity, just like Hitler took advantage of that opportunity back in uh, the 1930s. Uh, so 
to me, you know, it's a very sad tale of Donald Trump being the heir of um, the problems that uh, were created by Barack Obama's policy. Yes, chapter 14 ends with the bailout crisis Obama wasted. Okay, well, um, maybe I can sum up your textbook uh, with uh, one of the sentences in the conclusions, which is, uh, this book explores the differences between imaginary and real markets. And you do so through a very interesting um, list of uh, figures, charts and diagram, and the titles themselves of your textbook are very evocative, very original. You don't find another textbook of economics with such unusual, original, evocative titles. And this is why the book has already been successful, uh, among other reasons. I am very grateful for your time. We spoke with Professor John Komlos that, among many other things, was the chair of economic history at the University of Munich in Germany uh, for 18 years. And he just published a book through Routledge. The second edition he is now um, published in 2019. And this is... A very, very interesting book for, for many potential readers titled Foundations of Real World Economics. John Komlos, Routledge, 2019. Thank you very much, Professor Komlos. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy.